As we are doing this series on sex in the city, maybe you've um, been able to listen to the first few parts of it. Maybe you might want to go and catch up online. That's also great. Um, but we just wanted to uh, let you know, I know that there's so many different people here from different walks of life, different life experiences. And um, when we are talking in, on, in these Sunday morning times, we really are doing a very general kind of thing, but what we want to do is in those smaller forums that we've planned all across the, uh, over the next month or so, those are the times we, we want to just have those more intimate conversations and talk about things that are more pertinent to individuals and specific situations. And we also want to say, if any of these conversations or these sermons have surfaced something in you that's maybe difficult or touched a tender part in your life, Please don't feel like you can't speak about that. I really want to encourage you. And, and I mean, I know many people have reached out to us already. But maybe it just has a, a touch on something that you need to speak about in a, in a more personal context. Please tell us. We, we don't want you to go uh, and to be, feel like you're struggling um, because things have been surfaced. We want to be, this to be a, a helpful and supportive uh, process for us as a church community. Um, so as, as I was thinking about what to prepare for today, um, we were wanting to look specifically at marriage. But as I began preparing, I felt like the Lord said, well, before we can have all of these different conversations in different forums, we need to make sure that as a church community, uh, we are all on the same page about some foundational truths. And so I want to just unpack some things this morning that I think are really helpful for us as a church community, that when we talk about sexuality, when we talk about sex, that we are actually all coming from the same place. So that's, that's kind of what I want to speak about today. What are some foundational truths for us as Christians to understand biblically healthy sexuality. So the place where I want to start is a, a very powerful story in John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11, and probably come up there, Cash will bring it up. And I'm just going to read the story to you. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early in the morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right. But let he who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When his accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, 
Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. So here we have a beautiful little cameo. And uh, I think Luke, when he wrote this, it's such a beautiful way that he, the language he uses. But if you had to make this like a little movie scene, so the scene is the temple in the early morning, the, probably the birds are tweeting. It's really, really early in the temple courts. And we've got these four different characters that are played out in the story. We've got Jesus, who's the protagonist. We've got the gathering crowd who are coming to hear Jesus teach. Then we've got the religious teachers and the Pharisees, who we could definitely say are the antagonists in the story. And then we have a married woman caught having sex with another man. She's almost like the victim in the story. You see, Jesus wanted to teach the people about God's heart and his ways, and the crowd were really, really eager to learn from him. But like all of us coming on a Sunday morning, we're eager to know God's ways. We want to learn from him. And, um, but the Pharisees, and the teachers, the religious teachers, they were riled by Jesus' popularity and the authority that he seemed to possess so effortlessly. And the way that the Pharisees exposed that woman in her shame in front of the whole crowd, it also speaks of their cruelty and how merciless they were. In fact, she was merely a pawn in their attempts to undermine Jesus. As it says, they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. They had no care for this woman in her shame. And verse 4 captures their sarcasm when they call Jesus teacher, which is a title of respect, but they only had animosity towards him. They go on to say, this woman caught in the act of adultery, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Notice how they're trying to pit Jesus' teaching against the laws written by Moses. They were using the scriptures to justify their bloodlust. They were so consumed by the religious zeal to be right that they were happy for this woman to receive the full penalty of the law by being stoned to death. That was more satisfying to them than having compassion for her. What do you say, they asked Jesus. And so he kept silent. He kept silent because he knew they weren't really interested in his answer to learn from him as a teacher, or to be guided into the truth. So he didn't get drawn into their wrangling with an impetuous response. Instead, he tried to diffuse their vehemence in their challenge and their accusations by doodling in the sand with his finger. And this must have infuriated them further. So they keep pressing him for an answer. He stands up and he says... All right. Okay. Yes, Moses did say that was the punishment for adultery. You are right, which is what they really wanted him to say. You are right. Of course they were right. 
They studied the religious laws in and out. They knew every jot and tittle of how to keep people in bondage to obeying to the nth degree. But then comes the most arresting and powerful response. But let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. You see, Jesus went straight to the heart of the matter. You use the scriptures to justify your hardened hearts and you place yourself as judges over others as if you are perfect and sinless yourselves. When the accusers heard this, it says they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. They slipped away one by one. They left caught out, and now they, they couldn't, um, they felt the shame of their hypocrisy. They were the hypocrites, beginning with the oldest. I think the older you get, the less you can pretend at ignoring your regrets and failings. Such a beautiful piece of dramatic writing. But notice the crowd. They are still watching. What is Jesus going to do next? And Jesus says, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she says. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Jesus shows her mercy. He who was perfect and he had the right to condemn, yet he chose to show mercy and forgiveness. And then he says these very simple words, go and sin no more. Jesus did not condemn her, but he also did not condone what she had done. His mercy was to lead her to repentance so that she could find freedom in God's good ways for her life, not applied with legalistic rigidity, but with grace and kindness. You see, we see something of this in Romans 3, verse 23 to 24. Paul says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So as we consider issues of sexuality, we may find that perhaps we take on the posture of the religious teachers, or perhaps we see ourselves in the woman, or perhaps those in the crowd. Last week, Anthony taught us about the sexuality of Jesus. He, if you, and if you want to go and listen to it, it was a really brilliant sermon, that we need to identify and understand that Jesus was a man. He was a male with sexuality, the sexuality of a man. But Jesus was and is the only sexual person who has ever existed that is perfect and has never sinned sexually or in any other way. But the Bible says something different about us. It says there is no distinction. Every single one of us have fallen short of God's best for us sexually, whether that's in our thoughts, in our behavior, or in our desires. All of us, me, every one of us. 
And if we look on others disdainfully for their failings sexually, we become like the Pharisees, full of judgment and unkindness, blind to our own sinfulness. And so as we begin to have these conversations, let us be those that go, but for the grace of God, there go I. Let us be compassionate. Let us be merciful. I often feel grieved um, when I hear Christians talk about people uh, who are same-sex attracted as if God loves homosexual people less than he loves heterosexuals, as if being heterosexual gives people an inside track on being saved. We are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, period. Your sexual orientation doesn't save you and it doesn't put you outside the saving grace of God. I just need to say that very clearly. God loves you. If you're here today and homosexuality is something that you struggle with, God loves you as much as he loves someone who considers themselves straight. And we need to have that as a basis when we have conversations in this church. One of the sectors of society that has the highest rates of depression and suicide are young homosexual men. As Christians, I'm sure that Jesus would want us to respond with mercy and, and compassion rather than like the Pharisees did. But perhaps today you find yourself like the woman who had sinned and was overcome by shame. There is forgiveness and restoration in Jesus. He calls us to repentance, to go and sin no more. In 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 to 11, Paul speaks to the church after guiding them through a time when there was some sexual sin in their community by saying, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Consider what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what zeal, what vindication. When the Holy Spirit convicts us, he always leads us to change without any regrets. But when we are caught in sinful habits and we just go round in a cycle of feeling bad, then promising not to sin again, then being tempted and giving in, and it's just this repetition of the cycle, that is worldly sorrow. It's powerless to change us. Godly sorrow produces an earnest desire to honor God and to live in a way that pleases him. And this comes by confessing our sin to God and surrendering to the Holy Spirit to enable us to change. So that's the first thing I want to say as a foundation in how we have conversations. Let's be those that are like Jesus. Let's be kind. Let's be gracious. You don't know what someone's journey has been. You don't know what someone's choices, where they come from and how they've lived their lives. So let us be a community that is kind and compassionate and gracious, but also I do want to say that if you are hurting, if you are struggling, if you are overcome with shame in this area of your life, God says this morning that he loves you, that his forgiveness is towards you, 
that he wants to restore you and to bring you into complete wholeness. So that is the the first thing I want to say. And we're going to have some time just to pray into that later this morning. Then the next thing I, I feel is really important as we talk together as a church community is how we see scripture, how we value what God says in his word. You see, God is perfect in his character, in his nature, and his ways. He can't misspeak or make a mistake. Therefore, his word he gave to chosen human authors in the original language to write down what God was inspiring them to say. And those words are inerrant. They are are not... um, When I say inerrant, they are infallible. They are God's words to us. We humans, we're we're fallible. But God's power isn't limited by our imperfections. We trust God's ability to ensure the authors faithfully communicated his words in the original manuscripts and that he's preserved the truth of his word across all the ages. And we see this wonderful celebration of God speaking through his word in these scriptures. In 2 Timothy 3 verse 16, it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The word of God is meant to guide us and strengthen us and sharpen us as we read it. It's from God. It's inspired by him. And 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13 says, For this reason we constantly thank God, for when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Isn't that amazing? When we read the word of God, do we think, ah, this is just some person's opinion? Or do we really take it to heart as God's very word to us that works in us powerfully when we believe? And then 2 Peter 1 verse 20 to 21 says these words, Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And here at Forest Town, we hold to this so so strongly. The word of God is foundational to our personal lives. We want it to be the bedrock. That's why part of our vision is rooted in Christ. We want this word of God to so saturate our lives that it informs our attitudes, our perspectives, our sexuality, every part of us. It has to come because it is God's very voice to us. But since God created the world, People have pushed back against his words by asking, like like the serpent said to Eve in the garden, did God really say, are you sure that was really God speaking? The point is that Satan's attempt to cast doubt into the heart of mankind concerning the authority of God and his word has continued since the Garden of Eden all the way to today. And why is that? Because the most basic answer is something that's in all of us, which is the sin of pride. 
we inherited a sinful nature from Adam. And the root of that sin is pride. I know best. Because it's rooted deep down in our hearts. We're born with the same desire as Satan, as those Pharisees, to sit in the place of God. Our pride naturally opposes embracing the Bible, but even less so embracing it as inerrant, that it doesn't have any faults. The Bible contains too many verses about humbling ourselves before God and man to suit our taste. Apart from Christ working in our hearts, we may find the scriptures just too hard to swallow, too offensive. We naturally fight against it, against believing in the Bible, because if we accepted it, we'd have to submit to it. Apart from Christ making us spiritually alive and giving us the faith to believe and to surrender to him and his word, we will never submit to the Bible. We'll never embrace it as inerrant. But Christians, even Christians can struggle with the fact that the Bible is inerrant. Believing it contains errors gives us a good excuse to ignore the parts we don't like. The Irish author and playwright George Bernard Shaw, I don't know if you've been to Shaw's Corner up near Wheathamstead, he said this, he said, No public man in these islands ever believes that the Bible means what it says. He is always convinced that it says what he means. You get it? No one ever believes that the Bible means what it says, but he's always convinced that it means, it says what he means. Mark Twain said it in another way. He said, most people are bothered by the parts of scripture which they cannot understand. But as for me, I have always noticed that the passages in scripture which trouble trouble me most are those which I do understand. The Bible is a book about God, about us, about how God saves us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, it isn't terribly surprising to discover that the Bible has a great deal to say about sex. Human beings are sexual creatures. God made us male and female, and therefore the story of creation, fall, and redemption is necessarily, at least in part, a story about human sexuality. So that's the second thing I really hope that we can come to a place when we talk, that we love the Word of God, that we hold to it as a foundation for our personal lives and how we build this church and how we love and care for one another and how we see our sexuality. And the second thing, the third thing, is I want to say is that we really do need to understand that God is a good father. It's important that when we navigate our sexual lives, we understand we have a good father. Uh, Matthew 7 verse 11 says this, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven, who is good, give good things to those who ask him? God really loves you. He's not going to give you things that are going to harm you. 
And James 1 verse 17 says, every good and every perfect gift is from above. That includes sex. It's from God. And comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no shadow and variation of turning. And I'm going to jump to Psalm 18 verse 30. We sing this song, don't we? Um, You're a good, good father. And then how does that, all your ways are perfect and you're perfect in all of your ways. We sing that about our God, that he's a good father and he's perfect in all his ways. God is, God's way is perfect. All the Lord's promises prove true. He is a shield for those who look to him for protection. And Jeremiah 29 with 11 says, his plans are to prosper us, to give us a hope and a future, not to harm us. You see, I think, is that my phone pinging? You see, when we approach a biblical understanding of sexuality, we find that scripture has always been countercultural from the day it was written up till now. Our culture celebrates a lack of sexual boundaries, but scripture gives us guidelines that come from the heart of a loving father who wants to protect his children. How many of you have had children and you say, no, you do have to go to bed now because you're going to be grumpy in the morning and they go, it's not fair, I want to stay up late. Yeah. <laughs> we, we all have been there either as a child or as a, as a parent in some way and it's the same with God, it's not fair, God you're not fair, God says I love you. God God designed sex, and so he would understand best how this beautiful gift was intended to be expressed and celebrated. And so often, as Christians, we can just make statements about sex as mantras. We have these little comments or statements that we make without really truly wrestling with the scriptures and understanding God's heart. In our contemporary culture, Christianity is generally portrayed as sexually repressive in the extreme. Christians are known for being opposed to gay sex, premarital sex, and extramarital sex, and therefore the assumptions are that Christians believe that sex is in and of itself bad, um, but nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible says that the very first husband and wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Before the fall, before sin, sex was part of the created order. It was good. In fact, the writer Moses, he says, it was very good. And it was engaged in freely without inhibition of any kind by the man and woman. And the Bible says that sex was affected by the fall but it remains something to be celebrated and protected. And it's like that through the entire canon of scripture. So we need to understand that when we understand God's ways and when he says, hey, dude, what you're doing is not good. Don't do that. It's not because he's trying to say, I, I, I'm just trying to keep you from having fun. Because, um, I mean, let's face it, sex is fun. Sex is great, otherwise it wouldn't be a temptation. 
But God is saying, there's ways that I've designed sex to be beautiful and to be an expression of my love and my blessing to you. And I want you to find that best way forward. And the fourth thing I want to say, so we said, let's, let's create a culture of grace as we talk about sex for those who are in different seasons and journeys to us. Let's be those that can find grace for ourselves when we are overcome with shame. There is forgiveness. Let's be those who can see the word of God not as an enemy or something that we need to punch holes in. Let's find God's word as our our foundation and our base and how we discuss things. Let's trust that God is a good father and what he gives us is good. And now I want to end off with this last bit. And I want to say that sexual intimacy is very, very important for us to understand our relationship with God. It's very often difficult for Christians to grasp this idea because for many, views and thoughts about sexuality have no connection at all to their thoughts about God. And I know Ant preached a bit about that. Sex is over here on this side and talking about God is over here and the two never, never interact. Even the two words, God and sex, in the same sentence seem inappropriate. And this is even more true if we say sex and Christ. And when you think about it, really, Jesus never had sex, so that seems very inappropriate to put sex and Christ in the same sentence, right? What do the two have to do with each other? And yet, that's not what we find in the Bible. You see, Jesus is to be Lord over every area of our life. And God speak to, speaks to us in, the, in the every area of our lives. And we don't have to divorce ourselves from God and Jesus while we're making love and think, God, please don't look because now it's very unholy and you shouldn't be looking. No, we invite God into every part of our lives. In fact, when you look at the Bible all the way through, um, Piper, John Piper and, and Taylor, they wrote, wrote a book called Sex and the Supremacy of Christ. And they looked at how the language and the imagery of sexuality are incredibly graphic when describing the relationship between God and his people. Very often it's sexual imagery that is used, either that of a, a prostitute or a a donkey on steroids. It's very graphic kind of imagery. You can go and read it yourself. Um, but also in a positive way where there's a tenderness, there's a sense of God's, uh, that of a bride and a groom. There's very beautiful language when it describes the relationship between God and his people. Because you see, I want to say that God designed sexuality as a way to know him more fully. God designed sexuality as a way to know him more fully. How do we know this? You know that passage in John chapter 10 verse 14, it says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. God knows us. Jesus knows us. Jesus knows God and God the Father knows Jesus. And this word for knows, not knows, knows, 
K-N-O-W-S. This word is in the Greek, is nosko, where we get our word Gnosticism. And the definition of this word is to know firsthand through personal experience, to learn, to recognize, to perceive. It's the word that's used to describe how intimately Jesus and God know each other. They are intimately they know each other so perfectly. They know what each other thinks and, and their values. They know everything about each other. It's an incredible deep level of intimacy. And when we go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 4, 4 verse 1, it says, Adam knew his wife Eve. And that word knew or know is the same word that's used to describe the way that God knows his sheep and God knows, the Father knows the Son. It's the same word that God, that sexual relationship between Adam and Eve is the same level of intimacy that is described in that knowing. And this puts the importance of sexuality on a whole different level because John 17 verse 3 says, this is eternal life that they may gnosis, that they may know Jesus Christ, the one and true only God, that they may know you. Eternal life is intimately knowing God. That, what, that's what happens when you get saved. You start on a journey of great intimacy in knowing God. And the level of intimate knowing that we can attain when we are ecstatically and intimately and erotically bonded with our spouse during sexual intimacy and at orgasm is a taste of the depths and levels of the wonderful intimate connection that we will have with God in eternity. Did you know that's why God created orgasm? Because heaven is going to be one orgasmic experience. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard that talk before. <laughs> God is telling us, this is not as good as it gets, guys. This is, this is a foretaste of that wonderful intimate knowing that is going to be beyond your comprehension. You see, because God uses the physical to express the spiritual so that we can know him. Marriage, there's a marriage therapist called Jennifer Conzen that I was reading up, and she said this knowing is the foundation God uses to guard our sexual choices and to guide our sexual lives. When we live in that deep, intimate connection with our Father, He directs us in how we should live our lives overall and especially in, our sexu in the sexual arena. But when we don't retain that knowledge of God, this starts to cause a disorder in our sexual lives. When we start to, God no longer becomes the prime focus of our lives, it starts to bring a disorder. And um, uh, I just, um, and this is captured in, a, in Romans chapter 1 where it says, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. When we don't retain, when we don't nurture our knowledge, our knowing of God, it tends to mess us up sexually. 
And 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18 says, run from sexual sin. Get out of there. Do you remember Joseph when Potiphar's wife tried to go, and tried to seduce him? What did it say? It said she grabbed him and he somehow did this miraculous thing. He wrangled himself out of his coat and he ran. He got out of there. I want to say, if you're being enticed, run, my friend. Run from sexual sin. That's what it says. Get out of there. Because no, it goes on to say, no other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. That's why it is so negative. You see, when, when God speaks to us through his word about how we to live our lives sexually, he is concerned with our well-being. The world will tell you he is concerned with squashing your fun, with being prudish. God is saying, no, I love you. I am concerned with your well-being. Because sexual sin may seem pleasurable at the time, but it ultimately begins to erode at the very essence of our being. And if we sin sexually as Christians, we also begin to miss out on the inheritance that God has planned for our lives. You won't lose your salvation, but you'll miss out on a lot of stuff that God has planned for you because he can't use us when we are trapped and in bondage to things that are not good for us. God wants us to be in a whole and healthy place. So this morning, and I've kind of like, I don't want to leave this hanging because we want to talk about all the details. I was thinking this Sunday we could talk about all the specifics about sex, but no, we won't today. We want to talk about the foundations. We want to talk about the fact that these are the things that we want to be on the same page about. So we're going to take these conversations deeper. And I really want to encourage you. Find one of those forums that we are opening up to come and be part of conversations. I know it can feel very vulnerable. We're not going to ask you to talk about your sex life and just explain all your sexual experiences. If that's what you think is going to happen, don't worry. We're not going to ask you to. If you want to, you can. But uh, we're not going to expect that of you. But I think one of the things that I think is really, really helpful is that when we begin to talk, we realize, I'm not alone I'm not the only one who feels these things. I'm not the only one that's struggling with these things. And this church is not here to put condemnation on you, okay? So don't think you're going to come to one of these things and it's going to be like, now I told you, you better stop that, stop that, stop that. Okay, maybe God might say that to you. But what we want to do is to bring ourselves, bring our lives into alignment with God's good good wonderful blessing in our sexual lives. So so just to reiterate some of the things that we're going to have tonight, you've got questions, we're going to have a, we're going to hand up pieces of paper, you can write your questions, whatever you want. I know some of you are dying to ask about oral sex, you better put it on that question paper and we can answer that tonight. Maybe you want to ask questions about masturbation, maybe you want to ask I don't think, I heard that there's such a thing as sex with robots. It's totally weird. But let us be able to talk about these things. Because God's ways are good 
And I want to tell you, you will find his ways will bring a freedom and a joy in your life. So tonight there's going to be a question time. Wednesday night we're going to talk about womanhood. Uh, those of you in menopause, yippee, hot flushes and all of that. Doesn't that make our sex lives wonderful? Or whatever season you are in as a woman, or maybe you're single, maybe that's something you want to talk about. Uh, we are going to have on the 19th, Mark and Mari. Hello, Mark and Mari. They are going to be doing something for what, what how do we... Con- uh, how do we um, do our, manage our sexual lives and our sexuality after marriage? Perhaps you are divorced or widowed. What? How do we do that once we've been sexually active and in relationships? And we're going to have a time for mothers and daughters sex talk and a father and son sex talk. And we're going to have uh, Johnny's going to do something on if you're dating. What about that? How far can you go? The good old question. How far is too far? You all have those questions. So, Johnny, you can answer that. Thanks, Johnny. <laughs> and uh, and on the, I think on the 26th, we're going to have, um, uh, with mums who've got little ones, it's not, not easy when you're breastfeeding and you feel like a milk cow and you've got to like be sexy. How do you do that? I don't know, there's so many things to talk about, aren't there? But, I've, and, uh, but next Sunday, one of the things we really do want to talk about is actually how we as a church, how do we be a people that can love and care for one another in the different seasons that we're in? Um, you know, sometimes we need to become aware if, if we're married and we've got a partner that's wonderful, oh, are we aware of the single people in our church who who may be struggling and feeling lonely? Are we being mindful? Are we being inclusive? Are we opening our lives? Because, because just because you're single doesn't mean you are no longer sexual. You are. And how do you handle that? How do you live that in a church community? And how can we support you? And um, I know I mentioned homosexuality. Maybe there's some of you wanting to ask questions about that. We are going to do that as a whole section later on in the year. We've got some wonderful people who are same-sex attracted. We'd rather they came and talk to you about it because I I wouldn't know what they've gone through in their lives. And we're going to invite people to come and share their experience as Christians and how they've navigated that for their lives and how can we support people who are in that place. So, yeah, so we're trying to touch on everything, and uh, I hope that is helpful. And so I do want to say this morning, if you're upset by something, I really, that is not our intention. We want to help get us all on the same page on the big points, and we can find space to talk about, oh, yes, and then we're going to do something for married people. Then we'll get really a bit more explicit, guys, and you're going to do that? You can talk about all the, the ins and outs. I mean, the, <laughs> the things that we need to talk about. Right. Woo-hoo. Okay. That was a Freudian slip. Um, okay. Right. So I'm going to just end with a, a basic summary. Re- <laughs> Rest. 
as we go forward, let's rest in the grace and the forgiveness of God for ourselves. And let's be gracious to each other. Let's trust in the authority of God's word for our protection. Let's remember that God is a good father who loves us very much. And thirdly, fourthly, let's remember that sex, as God intended, is beautiful. And it's a foretaste of how glorious the intimacy we will have with God will be in eternity. It's a little taster of what's to come. And it's how we can know our Father better.